get dough. Welcome to Dosed, everyone. It's Monday, November 21st, 10.30 a.m. On the West Coast. show for you today. Sitting here with Abby Martin. Hi, Abby. Hey, Mike. Uh, Thank you for that introduction. This is a great show. This is going to be a great show. I can feel it in my bones. You know, there's probably no subject that makes people more uncomfortable than the fact that one day we're all going to (laughs) die. Mortality is not just something people don't like to talk about personally. But there's no real education to prepare people for facing the inevitability of death and dying for yourself and your loved ones. Even our cultural norms for funerals and burials reflect a resistance to accepting death. But there's a big contradiction here. At the same time, America can demonstrate both a numbness to and fascination with death as long as it's people we don't know. Not only is America unique in its rate of serial killers... People love TV shows and movies about them. We have an epidemic of mass shootings, yet gun worship remains an unofficial American religion. War and militarism, which are institutions of death, also have their own altars in the United States. So in the West, we are simultaneously desensitized to death, while also being too scared to talk about it. Caitlin Doty has dedicated her career to promoting the concept of death acceptance, something so opposite of the norm in Western culture. Working inside the funeral system from a young age, experiencing everything from preparing bodies to delivering cremated ashes to loved ones, she became an advocate and educator helping people understand the feared world of death, and also somehow making it enjoyable. She's very well known for her very popular YouTube show, Ask a Mortician, which she has dutifully been doing for 11 years now, with so much incredible content there. But she's so much more than just a YouTuber. Caitlin is also the author of three New York Times best-selling books, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematory, From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death, and Will the Cat Eat My Eyeballs? Big questions from tiny mortals about death. She's also the founder of the organization The Order of the Good Death, which brings together like-minded professionals in the world of death to advocate for a more death-informed society, and most importantly, making people more comfortable with the idea of mortality. This can seem like an intimidating and uncomfortable conversation, but as a fan of Caitlin's work, I promise you, it is going to be fun. Caitlin, welcome to Dost. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. So we're both friends with uh, Connor Habib. He speaks very highly of you. He's talked about you for so long. In fact, I think we were at the same going away party for him before he moved to Ireland. And I, I wouldn't call him a friend. <laughs> I don't know about that. 
<laughs> That's a strong word. Um, yes, no, we're, but he's same. He speaks incredibly highly of you. And I think probably can't believe that we haven't hung out or talked pri- you know, prior to this. It's amazing. And, I, and even though I knew about you kind of like peripherally, I, it, it sparked my interest again when I read Chris Ryan's book, Civilized to Death. And then he sources a couple interesting things that you've talked about. And I was like, why is it that I don't, why is it that I have not like dived into her complete body of work? And so I just started to do that and I was so blown away. Caitlin, I'm so fascinated with everything that you do and I've been looking at a ton of your material and it's just incredibly important. And I encourage oh, good. people we to got check another out your recruit. work. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm in, I'm in baby. Um, we've, we've dosed you. <laughs> I'm dosed and let's dose our audience here. I mean, I guess let's start with this. I mean, man, many people probably just from pop culture and just like the way that our society displays these things. I mean, many people may have a certain person in mind when they think of who becomes morticians, like as creepy or weird. <laughs> but I think one of the reasons you're so successful at what you do is because you've just completely shattered that misconception and in fact are a very funny, positive person engaging with the subject matter. So I guess talk about how, like, what was your dosed moment uh, to get interested in death and what made you embark on this journey? Well, I don't know if I entirely shattered the stereotype of being a little <laughs> creepy and weird. I think I do. I do embody some of that a little bit. Um, but as far as like my dosed moment, I mean, I have, it's kind of two. Uh, the first one would be when I was very young, when I was about eight years old, I witnessed a, a death or what I assume was a death at my local mall when a young child fell off the very high second floor atrium balcony. And I was there and I heard it and it was just incredibly stressful and painful for months and probably years afterwards because the structure of society around me didn't have a lot of um, things in place to be like, hey, young girl that witnessed a death, that's okay. Death happens. Here's what death is. That doesn't mean that your parents and pets and grandparents and friends are all going to die within the next year. You know, we just don't have that much literacy around death. And so I didn't have much of a, uh, I mean, my parents are great, but I didn't have an active, you know, let's talk about death support system. And so I think in a lot of ways, my work now is kind of to heal the child within, you know, what, what our work, what of our work isn't that, you know? Um, but as far as like my sort of radicalization moment is when I going through the process of going to mortuary school and starting my career in death and realizing that the funeral industry, as we know it, the fact that when you die, you have to pay for death and you have to pay for professionals to handle your dead body. I did not understand that that was a late 19th, early 20th century invention, that it has to be a sort of a capitalist process. That was totally unclear to me. And I think most people think of funeral directing or being a mortician as like the world's oldest profession, (laughs) other than the other world's oldest profession. Um, but I, I didn't understand how much it was a very, very recent thing and how prior to that families would just take care of the dead. And it wasn't this thing that you paid a bunch of money for. It was something that was done within a community and a community came together to take care of the dead body because there's not honestly that much that goes into it. Once the dead body is dead, it's there. It's not unsafe, which is another kind of dosed thing is that the dead body is not unsafe. And, you know, it's there. if you can take care of someone when they're sick, it's much easier to take care of them when they're dead 
they're no longer pooping or coughing or sneezing or any <laughs> of these things. They're just lying there. And it, it becomes much easier and it can be this really interesting, ritualistic, lovely time. But that's now all taken behind closed doors and done by an industry. And so when I actually got into that industry and saw how it was working, that's that was kind of my my dosed, real dosed moment. Yeah, that that was a dose moment for me too. just watching your TED talk and stuff like that, talking about how, you know, 100 to 150 years ago, it was completely normal to have this community oriented, you know, wakes were very ritualistic. It was a very standard practice to to have the body there um, to just kind of mourn and, and go through that grieving process instead of just immediately distancing yourself from it and having these people come and whisk away you know, this this terrifying concept and just building upon that detachment that has just grown and grown with the advent of um, capitalism, essentially. Yeah, and also yeah. you're saying, like, the body, like, or the family, like, prepares the body and stuff, too, now that which is outsourced. But, like, cleaning and dressing, like, and preparing for burial, that was just, like, kind of like a family experience? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, family or community. You know, so you say that someone dies in your community. Maybe there's the the woman in your community who's sort of the layer out of the dead. And they would call her at night and she would come and she'd show up at the house and she'd help wash and prepare and lay out the body. And then your cousin, you know, has the wood shop down the street or the framing shop and he would build the coffin and then everybody would come together and and do it. And realistically, you know, when we talk about how can we reform the funeral industry, we're not going to go back to that. Maybe there are some communities, small communities, where something like that is still possible, and people in those communities should know that it's still possible and that you can bypass the funeral industry. But in Los Angeles or New York City, you're not going to, you know, walk down the street and build a coffin and have this. I mean, that would be nice, but that's not the reality of how communities work as much anymore. And so you're going to have to have professionals. You're going to have to have, you know, there's a huge bureaucracy now around death as far as the registration systems, as far as the health departments that get involved when someone dies, the coroner system. But even with those bureaucracies and with the fact that you're going to have to pay someone to help shepherd you through this, most likely, there's ways to make it better. And I want to talk about just I want to break down some of these things about the funeral industry, but first I kind of want to just ask you about the conditions that breed this kind of detachment here in the West, because, you know, we are obsessed with death in, in many ways. I mean, we are the children of the U.S. empire's death cult. We export violence and terrorism, essentially, but we thrive on this mythology, and we tend to have this revulsion to the truth about who we are, the nature of ourselves, let alone facing our own mortality and how that impacts literally every single thing that we do. Um, you know, I, I, I love this one video that you do that you're just like, you know, have patience because really everything that everyone does circulates around their own, <laughs> facing their own mortality. And that really does, you know, affect everything in our lives and in our culture. But I guess, it's not, of course, it's not just the U.S. I mean, it's the West in general and its relationship with death that differs greatly from so much of the rest of the world. What do you think it is about our society and just the Western culture that kind of breeds these conditions? Well, I think it's the Western culture, but I always really center it in America. And that's not just because that's where I live and work. I, I do think it's true. I think it's worse here than anywhere else. And a big part of that was this death, 
death system that we set up. So what you had is you can take it back to the Civil War and the fact that they needed to transport dead bodies long distance by train um, and embalming, chemically preserving the dead body was an important component of that and a, a kind of a good new technology given that. And so at that time, it was really useful to chemically preserve these dead bodies on the battlefield so the family could see them again. But after the Civil War ended, you had all of these men who were these this new category of embalmer, and they then had to figure out what their career was after that. And so they began this sort of 30, 40 year campaign to level up their job as as embalmers and as funeral directors and create this whole new category. And they they banded together and they created these traveling chemical sales companies to preserve the dead body. And they started to have titles and they started to have licenses, like heavy, heavy licensure. They started to have um, you know, groups that that lobbied for laws to to benefit them altogether. And so now what we have is this system and then in World War One, it's interesting you say about the sort of American death cult. I think World War One, I, I kind of pinpoint as the time where America, there was just so much death and so much dying that America was kind of like, I don't want to do death anymore. <laughs> I don't want to handle the dead body anymore. And at the same time, you have death itself, the process of dying, move out of the home and into hospitals and nursing homes, you have killing of animals move from local farms or, or your homestead to slaughterhouses in these big cities. And then you have funerals move from the home into these private funeral homes. And that that was just a complete shift. And I think in the U.S. more than um, anywhere else, the United States has had this big capitalist system build up around the funeral industry and the other thing they've done a really good job in is making it very protectionist and making it very hard for other people to do alternative things for people to become funeral directors. For instance, in the, in the UK, in Australia, if you want to be a funeral director, you go, I'm a funeral director and you go <laughs> and you work as a funeral director and it's on the job training. And then here in the United States, it's like a, a two year program. That's that's very difficult to do and to pass. It's unnecessarily hard because it's sorry to say it. It's not rocket science to do what I do. I'm not very married to my own title of mortician or funeral director. You know, I, I think most people could do it. Um, and so you really had I know I'm sort of going on here, but I do think that that is sort of what set up this system and that makes it so hard to to get out of it because it's really worked. They not only set up the system, but now most people in just a couple of generations have no idea, A, how it used to be, and B, that in many ways they're still empowered to do different things than what the funeral industry is offering them. It, that's such an incredible trajectory to learn just through the different uh, generational you know, changes with this whole industry and how it's morphed. But yeah, I mean, it, it's an incredible point because it also... It's articulated in the way that we just treat the elderly, too, like in America compared to other Western countries where, you know, elderly people are living in the home a lot. Like in the U.S., it's it's almost like out of sight, out of mind. A lot of people just like put their <laughs> their old parents in, you know, hospice care or just like nursing homes and then just don't want to deal with that 
end of life. Yeah, I mean, the end of life conversation, the end of life care, and it's very different even in other Western countries. It's such a important point, and it just kind of exacerbates this detachment that we see here and the problems that you know, fester from that. Um, it's so interesting to yeah. me that the the modern for-profit funeral industry was like literally born out of war. Like right. that was the, the impetus for all of mm-hmm. it. Super interesting. Yeah, sure was. You know, you're so, you're so right. There is this sort of with both older people and dead bodies. It's sort of like, we just, no, thank you. <laughs> we don't, we don't want to see it. It's, it's, it's too confronting and yeah, it's confronting. That's the point. That's how you know, you're mortal. That's how you know you're human, is that you fully understand and embrace that you get old and then you die. And for a lot of people, most people in the United States have never seen a dead body. And how do you have, yeah, you've seen them on television, you know, you've seen them on the news. But if you've never actually been in the room with a dead body, how is death real to you? Right, right. And I see constantly like GoFundMe's. I mean, because of the lack of social services and like support system from the government with healthcare and other factors like that, you see the biggest fundraising asks on GoFundMe, not only for healthcare, but for funeral costs. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's just so unattainable for the average person. I mean, you know, what was it like the average funeral is like at least 15 grand. I mean, who, who the hell can shell out that kind of money and an unexpected, like a lot of, a lot of this that happens in this country is, you know, like with COVID, the normalization of mass death and then just violent deaths that are unexpected, you know, not just end of life care for relatives who are sick and dying, but it's, it's a huge problem, Caitlin. I mean, what do you see as the biggest problems with the funeral industry I know that you kind of went over some of them, but I guess just incorporate some of the biggest scams that are perpetuated too. Well, I think I think what you just brought up is important to talk about. Like talk about a dosed moment. During COVID, we had in my my funeral home in LA, we had a three or four month period at the beginning of 2021 where LA had its, you know, mass death incident with COVID. And it was all you know, people, it was all Latino men, primarily, um, black people from Southern Los Angeles. And it, we were completely overwhelmed and the government was just nowhere, nowhere to be found. And there were moments when I was able to talk to people who were supposed to be the head of, you know, the disaster relief programs for Governor Gra- Gavin Newsom, just being like, no, this is actually a business opportunity for you. Wow. Oh, my God. You'll figure it out. And here I'm being like, can you bring in refrigerated trucks? Can you bring in help? Can you bring in financial help? Like somebody has to help these people. And they just didn't. And that's, you know, part of the reason that I left California is just feeling like, oh, my God, if any if any actual, you know, huge disaster really goes down in California, we're just going to be screwed. (laughs) Because they had absolutely no help for all these people. And it was a disaster at that time. You know, it was essentially like sort of a genocide in this part of Los Angeles. And they just, they, they would not help anything because they had deemed that funeral homes were a private business. And this was a way for us to make money. And some funeral homes were really making money, which is another very difficult thing to talk about. But I think as far as like, what is the thing that we need to do is we need to be having a conversation about how funeral poverty 
which is a term they use in the UK a lot, where funerals are probably half the price that they are in the United States. And they're really mad about it. And we don't talk about it at all. We just accept that funerals are $15,000. And isn't that a shame? And oh, gosh, you, you know, you caught me with my pants down. I wasn't ready for this death. Well, you shouldn't have to be ready for an unexpected $15,000 expense. That's that's ludicrous. And the fact that the government has absolutely no help for people who die, the fact that you have to pay so much to die just for your for your body. I mean, death, basic death care should be free. There should be no cost to it. And yeah, if you want, you know, a a unicorn to, you know, walk, walk your body in a magical (laughs) sleigh down the street and you want dove releases and you want, you know, your ashes shot to the moon or something. Yes. Okay. You pay for that. That's not something, but like a simple cremation or a simple burial, those should be things that you should be able to count on. And in, and in many countries, you are able to count on that. And then in the United States, you can count on nothing. And the industry is bigger here than, than anywhere else and not surprising. So I think as far as, well, if you have no money, you are, um, depending, this is where it gets very dark, is you are essentially like in Los Angeles, for instance, you are put into, um, you know, basically a system where they, they hold your body for a certain amount of time to see if somebody claims you and then they cremate you. And your body, your ashes are held for a certain amount of time to see if somebody claims you and pays for you, aka like pays to spring you out of jail, of uh, you know, wow. poor person jail. And then if nothing happens, they every year they dig a big pit in East Los Angeles Wait. and they dump thousands of sets of ashes into it. Oh my God! Uh, what? Yeah. There's a fan- there's actually a fantastic documentary called A Certain Kind of Death. That I really recommend that's that's about that system. And the thing that you get from that documentary, and I know, you know, the guy who works at the crematory um, and the people who work in, um, you know, these people, and they're, they're all great people and they're all working hard and they have, you know, they're doing their best, but this is the system that they work with. Oh my God, that's so devastating, especially with the epidemic of homelessness and stuff. So there's just like a mass, a mass grave of poor people. Yeah, yeah, it's a community. Where is this? Of poor people, but this is in East LA in in Boyle Heights in Los Angeles. Holy shit! Okay, wow. I mean, I was gonna say they sell their they they might sell the bodies to the army to blow up and munitions testings like they like they did. They don't do that in LA, but there have there's there's many other places. Yeah, Abby, what's that story? I mean, just it was just crazy. I mean, in several there was this company. I think it's now defunct Biological Resource Center that um that was just like defrauding people by selling bodies that they thought that you know they they just thought they were donating their bodies to science. Not even selling them, but just. Yeah, no, they, well, they were selling them for like thousands of dollars, but the, the families were just donating the bodies for scientific research for, in this, in this guy's particular case was like Alzheimer's research. And then they just blew up his grandma. Who did? Um, this, this, the army, <laughs> the U.S. army. So the the um, army was buying bodies from this yeah, company yeah. and then just yeah. testing bombs on them? I mean, which is a whole, it's, I guess it's a whole other scammy side of this because I don't know what you think about organ, um, donations and stuff, but it's like the whole, tissue donation and then companies like this that could actually exploit that system to make a ton of money that the families never see to do crazy shit like this yep 
<laughs> that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but, but I mean, but that's actually kind of a good existential question is most of those, you know, body brokers, which is really what they are. And to be clear, like if you're doing organ donation, like major organ donation, say that you get into a motorcycle accident and you're very young and you can donate your, your fresh dewy organs to someone who really needs them. That's great. And that's, that's kind of a different thing. But when we're talking about, Hey, we're a science company, donate your body to us and we will give you a free cremation and you'll just get the ashes back. You usually don't have control, like really read the fine print and ask a lot of questions about that because yeah, they're absolutely, it could be used to train for plastic surgery. It could be used to train ballistic missiles. You could be essentially a crash test dummy. The and si- for some people, science means military science sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And for some people, they're like, yeah, whatever, you know, however I'm useful, hang me from the, you know, flagpole, I don't care. <laughs> and then some people are literally, they, they think that like their beloved mother is going to cancer research every time and like curing cancer. And in fact, she's, you know, being thrown out of a plane into like area 51. <laughs> like you don't, you don't know. And so really, really, really ask those questions. But that's another thing is like, okay, if you're giving your body and people are making all that money off of it, should you be making money? Should your family be making money? Like, should we be allowed to sell our dead bodies? And I don't know that I have a super clear final answer on this because it is so ethically complicated and murky. But if there's, and this is sort of sad, there's absolutely no way, whether it's through the commercial funeral industry that most people go through or these body brokers or scientific donations, there's no way that someone in the United States isn't making money off your dead body. Whoa, that's trippy, man. It's like not only do you have to shell out at least 15 grand if you want, you know, this proper funeral setting, but then you're also, right, you still have like, to do it. You can still uh, <laughs> donate your body to science and you still have to pay for the funeral. Too, <laughs> you still you have know? to Just pay like, for some sort of like funeral. disposal costs in this bureaucracy. That's wild shit, man. Absolutely well, definitely, wild. if you if you donate your body to science, you know, and you get the ashes back, just have a nice memorial. You don't have to work too much with the funeral home in that case. Yeah, just yeah. you know, <laughs> at least bypass that cost. And you know, if it like it can, scientific donation can work really well if you know, dad was a real science nerd or a professor, and he donates his body to the medical school, or he actually doesn't care where it's going and what research, and then you get the ashes back and you like fling them off, you know, Mount Rainier. And it's this whole moving thing. And you, if you had this conversation and then, yeah, it's really, you know, it can be very inexpensive to die. But a lot of cultures and a lot of families don't find that concept very comforting. Mike, and they I want, want you to, to believe that they're doing the right thing. And in that case, you can't do that. And you have to go through the whole, you know, $15,000 choose your own adventure. Right. Because a lot of this is like, you know, traditional settings of people who want to go through that route. And so it's like, you know. It's like part of their cultural norms and stuff like that. But Mike, I was going to say, I want to donate specifically my circulatory system to the bodies exhibit and have it like, no. like in some crazy <laughs> gymnastic um, stance or something. No, I'm just joking. They have, they, they got enough. They got enough. Yeah, they're, there. they're overwhelmed. They're, they have a, <laughs> everyone <laughs> wants to donate to the bodies exhibit. <laughs> yeah, to the body. Which is, I just you want know, my eyeballs that's great, Which is great because initially it was Chinese political prisoners right. in the bodies exhibit. And that was a little issue. Everyone's like, why does this um, person playing volleyball have a bullet hole in their head? <laughs> What's going on with that? 
Um, but now, you know, thank God, everybody who is there really is like, oh, this is so exciting. I can't <laughs> wait to, you know, be riding a horse flayed forever. <laughs> and like, that's, that's great. That's positive. Like, oh, I don't, man. I don't believe there's anything specifically disrespectful that can happen to a dead body if the dead person in their family is into it. Oh, of course. Yeah. If the consent, the consent is definitely mandatory here. Um, what about the, exploding casket problem. I want to talk about some of these scams that are kind of sold off, especially to people who are more wealthy and obsessed with this idea of, you know, preserving their bodies for eternity. Um, I guess the Pharaoh complex still exists, you know, today with, with the billionaire class and all these elites who just are in such denial that they want to have things like this, you know, eternal preservation of their corpses in these caskets and you know, not a coffin because you don't want it to be shaped like a body, but you want the casket. You want this box that's just kind of rectangle, a rectangle a box. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's it's very. That's another thing that the U.S. funeral industry is is really founded on is this idea of preservation and this promise of preservation. And when you chemically embalm the body, you're essentially just fixing the proteins. You're putting in formaldehyde into the circulatory system. You're draining out the blood and some of the main fluids in your, in your, um, you know, thoracic cavity and abdominal cavity, replacing that with preservative chemicals. And you're fixing the proteins. It's not forever. You know, in some cases, depending on how extreme you do it, it may be for a couple weeks, it may be for a couple months, your body decomposes at a different rate and in a slightly different way than if you weren't embalmed, but it's not forever preservation. But in a lot of ways, that that is historically, um, in the last hundred years, kind of how it's been sold to the family. And then you pair that with, okay, you know, you have to imagine grandma is very, very safe. And so they sell you these $10,000 caskets that are sealer caskets, which have this big rubber gasket that goes around it. And those big rubber gaskets are, you know, they're like $6 or something to manufacture, but that can add a couple hundred dollars to the funeral bill because it's the idea that we are protecting grandma in this fortress. So we're going to preserve her dead body and then we're going to put her in the sealer casket and then we're going to seal her up in this mausoleum. But this actually, what you want very much with the decomposition process is, one, to just allow the body to decompose, and two, a lot of air, because air really helps the, you know, sort of, sort of, uh, diffuse the decomposition process. But when you put, essentially putting grandma in a, like, high-pressure Tupperware situation, and the anaerobic bacteria are starting to decompose and it, the air builds up such inside this Tupperware sealed casket that eventually the force becomes so great that it can pop open. And when it pops open, it's exploding is sort of a, it, that became the term, but it's not like, you know, some sort of like star <laughs> nebula just like exploding into space. It's more just that this like sealed casket pops open, but then you have body fluid and mausoleums. A lot of mausoleums aren't designed entire, like above ground mausoleums aren't de- designed that well. So you get the kind of, you know, it's not drained and vented properly. So you get, that's when you see the videos online of someone goes to visit grandmother and they walk down the aisle in the mausoleum and there's just some weird brownish red fluid coming out the front of the mausoleum. And my thing is, I, you know, I'm a green burial advocate. I, I want you to just, you know, put your body in a hole 
in the ground and allow it to decompose. And that's not a beautiful, clean process. You know, what's going on as you become part of the dirt is, you know, to the average person probably sort of disgusting, this really intense, real portion of, of decomposition that your body goes through after death. But that's, at least that's what is kind of natural, natural is a weird word, but is naturally happening to the body, as opposed to this kind of, we're going to put it in this vaulted, beautiful mausoleum that this whole process you're paying tens of thousands of dollars for, and still, like, grandma liquid is coming out the front. Oh, of it, you know, it's it's sort of like you you get the the um the piper must be paid, like the decomposition piper <laughs> must be paid in some way. Nothing if that will makes keep sense. Him like, out. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like you can either like, just accept that, embrace that, and be like, all right, decomposing into the ground, everyone. Like to earth, to dust, I shall return. Or you can do these many many layers of of I would argue sort of denially sort of choices and expensive choices, but. It may still very well, like the, the skull will, will peek out at the banquet and let you know it's there. The, the rubber seal of denial. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. The gasket of denial. Yeah. I mean, just, man, there's so, there's so many crazy things that you just said. I mean, Mike, what were you saying about just that giant, we're, that giant, um, graveyard that is on the way to Griffith Park? That, oh, Forest Lawn. Yeah. You know about Forest Lawn, Caitlin, I'm sure. Oh, Forest Lawn is fantastic. Forest Lawn is a, is a, is a wonderful story. There was a man named Hubert Eaton who, if you ever go, he is the founder. He's sort of like the Walt Disney of death and they were actually <laughs> friends, not surprisingly. Oh, okay. When Walt Disney is, is buried at there, not cryonically frozen, common misconception. <laughs> um, but his, he, he's buried at, or I think his ashes are buried at Forest Lawn and, um, they, Hubert Eaton, like, he was referred to as the founder. Like, they had, not just, like, that's his title on the business card, but, like, they had to call him that. <laughs> like, the the founder, which is what I want to be called at all times. <laughs> um, and please refer to me as such. But he, he really was the kind of, um, the epicenter of, in many ways, the modern American cemetery, the idea of the totally flat headstones. And the, the switch from, you know, if you go to a, you go to an old East Coast cemetery from like the early 1800s, you got the big old headstones and the mausoleums and all these things, which honestly, aesthetically is, is still really cool. cool. Yeah. They I all think, have like skulls on to them too. Yeah. yeah right, exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. Like just skulls. a straight up skull. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Which is, sorry, it's the vibe. I hate to promote it, but it's great. <laughs> and, um, but. But in, in California, you had this new way and Hubert Eaton at Forest Lawn was really kind of the, the guy with all the euphemisms, with the book, the Evelyn was the loved one is based on Forest Lawn. Um, just this, you know, the loved one will be in the slumber room and, you know, he is in the resting garden and things like that and all the flat stones. So I, I, I do think that a lot of our, um, U.S. denial of death can kind of be traced back to him as well. He had a huge influence. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's like the suburban sprawl of the modern mm -hmm. graveyard. Um, Mike, remember when we were, was it Boston when we went to that tiny graveyard and there was all these like tombstones that had the, the skulls and then the skulls with wings and then there was like ye bay by hope to die. Oh, for it was, the, like, for the, the, babies. The, the babies. It, it was, was like a little baby, dead 
a baby icon or like a little yeah, child it was really, with wings. It's just crazy because you just do not see oh, it that. Was, uh, it was a great caption on one. It said, look upon the baby and learn to die. Yeah, Being like, right, basically right. like, face your mortality by <laughs> right. seeing this some of a dead kid, but like learn to die was a great Right, right, right. Yeah, no, it was Ooh, a lot more yeah. kind of confrontational. It was just like right up front, you know. But speaking and of when Disney, you get to Forest yeah, Lawn, it becomes very much like the little lamb of heaven, right? <laughs> you know, as opposed to like look ye upon this baby. <laughs> speaking of Disney being cryogenically frozen, I mean, it's funny because billionaires believe. I mean, they are in such denial about this, and they they have such a hubris about this that they actually believe that we are on the edge of a time of being able to achieve immortality with this. I mean, this is literal. I mean, several multi-billion dollar startups are based on the freezing of one's body to reanimate in the future. Um, this whole uploading your consciousness into, into a computer, the synchronization, like the uh, neural link stuff that Elon Musk is working with, with pigs. You have, um, like Jared Kushner even said recently, that he goes to the gym every day, not just to stay healthy during his life, you know, to, to have the best life that he can have, but so that later he'll be able to live forever. I mean, how how well, crazy we're the you have to be? First generation to yeah, achieve that, immortality, right? I believe. Right. Um, so I guess, do you have any thoughts on like this obsession and the emerging immortality industry that's exploiting this obsession? Oh, bless their hearts. Um, <laughs> there, there was a really great article recently in um, like a long read in a Toronto magazine about this place called Longevity House. And it's this kind of, you know, bougie startup. And it was a guy who, um, his original job was like a men's fashion atelier. And he made all the suits for like the Toronto Raptors, the NBA team. And then transitioned to this house where you buy a like $100,000 membership and you come and there are all these just like little gadgets that, you know, uh, shake your photons or replace your blood with virgin blood or, you know, all the things that they like. And it really, I think for a lot of these, this category of men, it's sort of just like expensive hobbies. You know, like I, I do think that there are some people who have a real intense belief on immortality and people who are really working on it. But I think for a lot of the kind of, of tech people and wealthy people who are into it, who are by the vast, vast majority men, I, I do think it's kind of, it's almost like goop for those kind of men. Right, right. Like, it's fun. It's fun, like trinkets and activities and get togethers and processes and bodily, you know, fitness that is, is all just kind of hobby. You know, and, and it's through this lens of immortality. So in that, in that sense, I'm like, you know, I like stupid scented candles. Like, is that much different? You know, like, <laughs> uh, you know, like what, am, how, how am I to say this? But as far as the real like push for life extension, for me, I think where we are now, it's troubling because it's so obviously just for them. Mm-hmm. It's so obviously for, you know, (laughs) for our overlords to become even more overlords. Like there's, there's no question that it's, it is not for happiness and health for the vast majority of people in the world. Like there's just no, there's no pretensions for that. Like they have no, they're so untouchable that there's, there's no need to pretend that it's going to help everyone or anyone beyond them. And I, I haven't heard, you know, and they, they, they have a kind of like, trickle down immortality 
that they think is going to happen, but there's no sign that that's going to happen. And I've never t- heard anyone talk about how that's going to happen. So, you know, it just, it seems sort of obviously there, there's no evidence so far that any of it is going to, yeah, there's things that can in small ways probably meaningfully um, extend your wellness period or make you live better longer. And I don't have any problem with that being explored, but as far as genuine, you know, bouts of immortality or much longer lives, I've never heard any of those men talk about it in any way that would benefit anyone other than them. Yeah. It's, it's probably just going to end up, cause there is like stuff that seems feasible, like just slowing of aging and stuff. You know, there's even right. you know, celebrities are already on that shit and like really rich people, but it, yeah, it'll just end up with like, you know, if you are in a certain income bracket, meaning like a hundred million dollars or more, uh, you'll live to be like 160 and then everyone else will still, you know, have the same average lifespan. Yeah, and it will literally be through like weekly like blood and fecal <laughs> You know, and it's like, do you want man, do you wanna be 160? Not man. especially like you're not you don't seem to be it seems to be like you hit a wall with how much wisdom right. you get <laughs> man. in that period. Yeah, especially knowing how stupid Elon Musk is now, it's like damn, like the rich like, definitely guy. does not <laughs> when, he's does like, not when he hits a hundred, he's like, now my gloves really come off. <laughs> Now I really show you the true me. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, let's talk about your organization, uh, the Funeral Reform Collective, called the Order of the Good Death, because it spawned this whole death positive movement, and it's really important to talk about this because, you know, I've always I've told Mike, my husband, Mike, listen to me, and I need I know I need to sort the paperwork out, but I always I've always said that I just want to be thrown into like a biodegradable sack and composted or whatever like the least environmentally intrusive thing is to dispose of my body but i probably need to make sure that my wishes are respected in this regard <laughs> instead of you having, don't trust like, me <laughs> <laughs> i guess now that we're married i i do but yeah before it was like who knows if some like religious family members stepped in and they're like no we need a whole catholic mass like a whole fucking funeral procession and Blah, blah, blah. But, um, but I guess just talk about what the death positive movement is and what, and let's walk through some of its core tenets. Sure. Yeah. So death positivity, you know, first of all, is not like, oh my God, your grandma died. Amazing. Like we're so positive about that. Um, the idea is that it's okay to be interested in death. It's okay to be, you know, like the conversation that you were just having about like, oh, okay, I want to, I think I want to be in a sack and, and composted, which is by the way, human composting is now a very real thing and something that my organization is working very hard to legalize around the United States and around the world. So having that conversation, that doesn't have to be a hushed conversation. You don't have to just sort of, you know, slide it under the radar or maybe just make a little note in your email or something. You can, you know, in a full-throated way, have that conversation. Wait, really quickly, be- that's pretty crazy that it's not legal. Well, it's so this is the way that, that it works, and especially in the United States. There's no national – there's a couple national death laws around, like, funeral home pricing – something mm-hmm. called the funeral rule and like disclosures that have to be made. But for the most part, funeral laws and, and dead body laws are state by state. And so every, in every state, cremation is legal. In every state, burial is legal. But with these new technologies that we have, one being aquamation, which is essentially a water cremation where the body is dissolved with high heat water and potassium hydroxide down to bones. 
And then human composting, which is the body is put into what looks kind of like a Japanese capsule hotel. And it's, um, you know, you put in your little pod and you have, um, wood chips and alfalfa and air, essentially, and your body decomposes into nutrient-rich soil. And then the family can take that soil or they can donate it to a conservation ground, they can put it in their yard, whatever is meaningful to them. And those two new options need to be legalized state by state. We need 50 different bill sponsors. Wow. We need, you know, 50 different letter writing campaigns, testifying. You know, it's a, it's a very long process. But what I will say is that it's happening quicker, certainly, than things were happening 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, it, you, death changes very slow. <laughs> so these conversations that we're having, I think, really have in, like, the death positive movement and the things that opening up the conversation, it does make things happen a lot faster. And things have kicked along in a faster way than we ever thought. So the idea behind the organization, which is the Order of the Good Death, is to not only have these conversations, but also try and do real sort of organizing work around legalizations of these processes, um, going out into communities and letting people know their rights around death and the dead body, you know, debunking myths um, and just letting people know what they they can do with their dead body. I mean, these tenants are really important, and I think not as obvious as some people may think. I mean, the most obvious one is just like by hiding behind this concept, we're doing great harm to ourselves and a detriment to our society because we're taking away like the agency of especially mar- you know marginalized communities who need access to these resources, need these things to be front and center so they can be cared for. Um, and, and of course, these laws that you're talking about, I mean, having our end of life wishes respected, making sure that laws are on the books to be able to carry these things out, but also just talking like, like what you said. I mean, this isn't about normalizing death and grief. That's the opposite of that. I mean, it's, it's respecting grief. It's respecting people's timelines and differences in how we deal with death and the grieving process, but it's putting that up front and center and being able to hold safe spaces to be able to talk about this because it's such an uncomfortable thing that even when it's like, if you, it's like, if you haven't experienced the loss of someone really close to you, it's like very uncomfortable to be able to understand how to relate to someone who has, because it's just such a closed off source of dialogue here in this country. And so there's so many important things on the order of the good death.com that I encourage people to check out about why this kind of culture of silence around death should be broken through a, a multitude of facets of our society, you know, culture, um, art, innovation, scholarship, discussion, the legal avenues yeah, Caitlin, it's it's this. I really um have really loved diving in your stuff because it's like this idea of being death positive. Like, doesn't mean that you are like desensitizing yourself to death or just become like totally okay with death and all forms of stuff. It's like <clears throat> you know, going back to like your origin story of like this as a child, seeing you know what appeared to be a death, but like nobody like talked to you about it, and just like this severe lack of a conversation for anyone about even if you haven't experienced death, like 
the inevitability that you will experience that kind of loss. Um, and it, it also, when you, it reminded me when you're talking about the like real COVID surge when funeral homes got hit really hard. I actually met someone who worked at Forest Lawn, but also there's lots of articles about this during the time. But like, I think there's this feeling that like people who work in the funeral industry, you know, whether they're morticians or people who manage the funeral homes, like they just become so norm. Death is so normal to them that it doesn't impact them anymore. But what we saw during that COVID surge is that like everyone, all the like workers and staff at funeral homes in all areas of, of work, like all kind of started like falling apart because it was so much. And there was this, you know, it's like, yeah, like one or two funerals a day you can kind of handle, but then when it becomes like eight or nine or 10, you kind of like can't handle it. And so, yeah, so just you're becoming more death literate and understanding these things. It's not, it's not that it just makes you all of a sudden, oh, I'm not affected by death anymore. I'm not <laughs> worried about it or anything like that. It's kind of, it's, it's more about preparing yourself in, in other ways. Absolutely. The goal is not at all to to make you chill with death by an, by any stretch. It's to make you it's to make you uh, chill with talking about death, but it's not to make you relaxed around death. You know, the people who say you're like, oh yeah, it's cool that you're talking about it. I've just never been afraid of death. Death has just <laughs> never you know done you know, meant anything to me. You know, if it happens, it happens. I don't trust that. You know, farther than I can spit. Like I just don't. I don't think you have not trembled at the bottom of the existential mountain, mm -hmm. like facing the, the truth of your, of your like, you know, bodily disintegrate, eventual bodily disintegration into nothingness in the void. Like you have not faced that if you're just relaxed around death and the people who have really done a lot of work to think about their own death and their own mortality, myself included, you know, we can say, Hey, this may be easier for me because I've done so much work, but not only is it a constant relationship that I have to always be checking in with, I have a very, very healthy respect for my relationship with my own mortality because it is very hard one. And I would never disrespect it by being like, oh, just don't be afraid of death. Mm -hmm. It's nothing to be afraid of. You know, well, yeah, it is. It's the like the, the primal question of, of humanity is, is going, going through our whole lives, knowing in the back of our minds every day that we will eventually be no more. And what are you doing today? That will, you know, sort of for yourself justify your life. And it's not that you have to do anything to justify your life, but those are the questions that we face. And, and it is our knowledge of our own mortality that creates those questions and creates our self-esteem and creates our relationships and whether or not we have children and whether or not we get married and whether or not we create content, you know, or any of these <laughs> things that we do. Um, is based on that relationship with mortality. And we'd be a much more self-aware society if we were being more open about that conversation. Right. I, yeah, exactly. The finality of life. And um, I guess it just goes back to this kind of mythos that underpins our culture. You know, just because I live here, I'm born and bred uh, an empire baby, but it, it really does seem like there's so many kind of crisis cults and mythology that reigns supreme and that prohibits this kind of stark truth to really face our own mortality and live our life to the fullest. And for me, I, you know, having a child, our, our kid is two and a half now. And when he was born, I suddenly became obsessed with death. It was very strange and it's hard to talk about because it's so strange to actually address that. But it, it be, it made me so much more um, 
it made my own mortality so much more obvious of not only bringing someone into the world, but also how I need to now survive, like as long you as possible. You do a possible. lot of math. Like, realistically, <laughs> how old, will, how long can I, old can I, will I see him become? <laughs> and also just, it's just weird. It's like this weird juxtaposition of like wanting to embrace the beauty and love of life for creating life and seeing life through this innocent child's eyes. Everything's a march toward death, you know, like every... I'm marching toward death. I mean, that's what life is. It's like just a slow march toward this finality, you know? And it's just really strange to just kind of step back and actually take stock in all of that. It's just, but I guess that's why these conversations are necessary. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't have children and I, I had never really wanted children, but even just thinking about having them like, Oh my gosh, how much that would radically change my relationship with death. Like how much that would, I would just love them so much. And the idea, you know, maybe I'd become death negative immediately. (laughs) Even after like, you know, 20 years of work on this, I'd be like, actually, I cannot handle the idea of something that I have loved so much and have produced from my very DNA. The idea of it going away is just would be so, you know, threatening to me that I, that I could, that's absolutely a possibility. So that's what I'm talking about with like your relationship with death. You can be going along and think you're okay. And then anything from having a child to getting married, to losing your job, to having a parent die can completely throw a wrench in the whole thing. And you have to reevaluate again and and work on it again. Uh, I, uh, I have a slightly different perspective than, than Avian. I, I feel like actually witnessing the birth of my child actually in some weird way made me understand or accept death in a different way. Like being present for a birth has like the same kind of level of profoundness as like being present for a death. And they're like, they have this like unity, right? I mean, it's like the Mm -hmm. bookends, the Mm -hmm. beginning and the end. And so I feel like the experience of witnessing like the beginning of a human life, the first breath and all that stuff, like it, it in a lot of ways made me more comfortable with the idea of of there being another point mm-hmm. where that is like the end of that story and that person, you know? Yeah, because even though birth is such an, it, it's as common as death, it's like it's still, we don't really dive into the birth. That's a whole nother dosed episode is like the whole birth industry and like just, you know, being present for that experience, even though it's so common. That's so, it, it is a good point, Mike. And I think that in a way, it made me think more about death because of that, because of bringing a life into the world and then being like, oh, like, you know, it's it's just as easy to extinguish a life and for a life to end because it's just the natural processes of, of, of the cycle of life. And um, I want to go back to the organization because I think it's it, it includes a lot of vital work um, that when we talk about, you know, you were saying like a lot of marginalized communities and a lot of... Latino and black people in LA were hit the hardest from COVID and stuff like that. I I appreciate that the work really recognizes kind of the fight against cultural appropriation, systemic racism, anti-LGBTQ, my God, LGBTQ (laughs) sentiments, and just like just general fear and the lack of resources available for some of these communities. And I, and I really appreciate that it incorporates that. It, it does. And, and we talk about this a lot with the idea of the good death 
and the the organization is called the Order of the Good Death. And every once in a while, someone will be like, "The Good Death, like what? You know, why are you saying the Good Death? It makes people feel like a failure if they don't have a Good Death. And not everybody's Good Death is the same. And for us, it's like, yeah, that's the point. Is not everyone everyone's Good Death is completely different. And access and resources to achieve the Good Death are going to be very different depending on on what culture, religion, group that you may come from. And being able to know your rights around that and and have that kind of access can really be a game changer. And the fact around the good death is you may never achieve a good death because there are a lot of things against you in our particular culture. But if you don't talk about it and you don't do some planning and you don't have a sense of what your rights are, you will definitely not achieve the good death. Like, I assure you, you will like come. No, you're not going to stumble into the good death. You're not going to stumble into a situation where you have a low cost option and it's very ritual focused and it's very meaningful and it's very personalized to the person who has died. That's not, you're not going to just trip and fall into that when you die. It's something that you really, and that's unfortunate. You know, you should be able to, when you die, just have the road rise up to meet you and a community to help you. But that's not really the reality in most communities anymore. And so you have to have these conversations. You have to know who your allies are. And there are a lot of documents like you were mentioning earlier that you're married now. And so you kind of have a different sort of trust about what's going to happen to your dead body. But for a lot of people, like, for instance, LGBTQ people, the documents around end of life directives or advanced directives where you have to sign something that says, I want this partner or this member of my chosen family Mm -hmm. or this friend to take care of my affairs and my and my dead body. You know, on one hand, it's like, oh, the bureaucracy. But on the other hand, that's the magical document that gives you the power. That's the magical document that takes you away from any family or situation that may not benefit you at the end of your life and puts it legally totally in the hands of someone that you really do trust. And so there are these things in place. It's just that some people may not know about them and they don't know how to work the system, which, of course, why would you naturally have that sense? And that's kind of part of also what we're there for is to be like, hey, let us help help us or help you explain this system and how you can use it to your advantage. So the good death is at least somewhat within your reach. Right. A lot of this is about equity. Um, I guess just talk about what is a good death to you? What would that mean for someone to achieve that i mean i think i think for you know obviously it would be without a a great deal of pain um it would be something that you know if you are paying for things around death you really feel like what you're paying for is either aligned with your values so say that you're able to um buy a plot in a conservation cemetery what a conservation cemetery is, is a land that would otherwise be developed on. But once you put some dead bodies there, I, I say it's chaining yourself to a tree postmortem. You know, you're like, can't, can't develop here. Hell no. You know, we won't go because we're dead. And having that land and being able to preserve it with your dead body. Yes, that may be, you know, $4,000 for that piece of land, but it's aligned with your values somehow. Um, so if you are having to spend money, at least it's money that's spent in a way that, that feels like is, is giving back or your, your dead body is doing something. Um, a good death would be to know that your dead body is being put to some sort of good use, either for an environmental purpose, like composting or like conservation burial, or for a ritual purpose, 
that you're, say you're cremated, that your ashes are being divided up amongst your family or being, being used for some sort of beautiful ceremony of scattering that honors you and makes your family come together and, and have a good feeling about everything and just giving people an opportunity in your family to be involved and to be present and to just, to, I want people to sit with my dead body. You don't have to do anything special. You can tell stories if you want, but just hang out with my dead body. Most people haven't seen a dead body. Let me be your body, you know, <laughs> to, to experience that, that kind of shift that comes with, with understanding mortality in that way. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of just, I'm just spitballing there things that I personally want, mm-hmm. but. I think that having that sort of conversation, you know, we hear all the time that people feel so much better after having that kind of conversation and can make things happen after and feel closer to their family and feel closer to their friends after having that kind of conversation, because it is also a way to just kind of establish your values when you're it's a it's a good entry point to how to establish your values while you're still living. Because how you die, it does in many ways reflect how you live. It's it's such an important point. And there was a quote, I think, I, I, I don't know where I gleaned it from your website, but I know it was somewhere on there about just when something gives me anxiety, I find that learning about it helps me. And if there's certain elements of it that I can prepare for or control, it gives me a little bit of comfort as opposed to being thrown into a horrible situation, which is if and when someone in my life dies, now I'm able to be more present in what's going on and deal with that loss instead of internally panicking about what I do next. And it kind of brings me to the larger kind of existential question about like what Mike and I do for our careers, which is we dive into a lot of dark subject matter about the crimes and atrocities perpetrated by our government and empire and war. And a lot of people would just completely... like not want to go that route and not want to learn about those things. But for me, it's very important because it's instructive and enlightening. And the more that I learn about these things, the more that I feel like I can have an honest assessment about the world and what to expect, especially, you know, and and in this subject matter, I feel like it's the same way. I mean, it, it makes me more sensitive to life, to mortality and just and it more sensitive to the fear and knowledge of what death is and the process of, of how people grieve and deal with these things. Yeah. It is interesting that I guess most people just plan to do like a crash course on death. Like when they have to event, eventually when a parent dies, I will have to spend three days doing nothing, but figuring all this shit out. Um, and so it's like, uh, procrastinating of having to actually, you know, knowing you're going to have to deal with, with something, but just waiting to be like, yeah, I'll deal with it all at once in the most intense time possible. Well, one, I mean, you you could do it earlier and that probably would be a really good conversation. Right. You know, I don't know what your relationship is with your parents, good or bad. Like it can help and bring you closer together in weird ways that you wouldn't expect. Um, and, and Abby, I was thinking about what you were saying about how you live or both of you live so deeply in the world that you're in. And, you know, this kind of all the stuff all three of us do is not for everyone full time. (laughs) You know, like I I've learned so much, um, you know, in my adult life about what the United States is and what it does and how the government works. And 
you know, I feel like I have a good working knowledge and I appreciate people who elucidate that for me. But if I lived deep in that every day, it makes me so angry and so sad <laughs> that I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So if you have the personality to be able to be an expert on it and live in it all the time, um, and I feel like that in many ways, that's sort of what I do with death as well. Um, in that I'm able to kind of live in it all the time. And people are like, how do you do that? Right. I, I don't know. It's, I'm able to for some reason. And it doesn't get me down. Like being a public figure gets me down way more than right, yeah. the death stuff. <laughs> you know, having to like be online. I feel you there. Having to like work with like large corporations to distribute this content is way more stressful and awful than, than the actual work with death. So if you are someone who is able to kind of walk with the darkness a little bit, you know, I, I'm proud of that for us, I guess, that we are able to, you know, invite people in to spend some time with it and learn, but maybe not require to live for them to live there all the time. Exactly. And I really like the way that you just articulated that. I want to wrap this up by talking about From Here to Eternity. It's a book about your global expedition to kind of document how other cultures care for and honor their dead. I'm dying to read it. I just read a couple excerpts online. I can't wait to buy the book as well as your other books. Um, I guess just talk about some of the most interesting things you've learned that people do with their dead around the world because there's such a vast spectrum here. We talked about the West extensively, how detached we are from the dead. I mean, there's there's cultures that do the exact opposite, live with mummified corpses for years, dress up skulls. Um, you know, even just our neighbor, Mexico, the embrace of the Day of the Dead rituals, um, you know, having these beautiful parties and um, great, you know, like setting up huge altars on the grave sites of their loved ones and really celebrating the life instead of focusing on the death of these people is just such a stark contrast to our culture. Well, well, that's a good, a good jumping off point is actually what's sort of interesting about death around the world is that using the dead body, whether it's a mummified dead body or a skull like the Nyatitas in, in Bolivia or some physical part of the dead body can be a jumping off point to celebrating the life and keeping that relationship going. And it doesn't have to be, you know, in this, this, um, very rural village that I went to in, in South Sulawesi in Indonesia, where they do keep not only the mummified bodies in their homes for a period of time, after they actually finally bury them, they bring them out in the year at a certain time and clean them off and dress them in a new suit and a wow. new watch and kind of introduce them to people around the village. And being there, it was so normal. That's what I really, I think the, the, the most rich information that I got out of actually being there is like, yes, as a lifelong death enthusiast, actually being able to be there and see the mummies and see the process was very cool. But the best kind of emotional information I got out of it is that this was so easily integrated and normalized and did not feel strange. You know, I was, I was there with a, um, we drove into the village. This kid, probably like maybe 15, 16 years old, caught a ride with us. He was texting his friends. He was posting stuff to Instagram, you know, just totally normal Indonesian teenager. And he had to go back to his village and like visit his uncle and grandfather who were mummies. 
And he was just like, Amazing. going to the village. Gotta do this. <laughs> you know, they're, and, they're, and like, you know, people are having kind of like potlucks. They're smoking their cigarettes. They're talking to the mummies. They're like doing the job. Like, it's so, so normal. And it's so like the, the mummies really are kind of part of this community and are allowed to be. And there was nothing kooky, ooky, creepy, weird, darkly ritualistic, nothing about that at all. It was, it was just totally normalized. And for me, that was really powerful because it was like, man, we can't even go to a wake like that in the United States. Right. Like we can't even be with a fresh dead body for a couple of hours like this and have it be normal and have it be, you know, it was emotional for some people. You know, you'd bring out someone who died a couple years ago and their wife is still very much alive and is, is deeply distraught at seeing them. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a distraughtness that's like, I miss this person so much. You know, and just being in, in in that world was just really um inspiring and really did bring home the the stark disconnect that we have in the West. Yeah, like we mentioned this earlier, but one of the things I learned from one of your videos is that the reason that we use caskets and not coffins, you know, like uh like Dracula style coffins is is which are popular other places is because they're too shaped like a body. And so we need <laughs> right. we got rid of one of the sides to make it just a rectangle because it's not body shaped. And so that's an mm-hmm. extreme other end of the spectrum of like, you know, having uh mummified grandma in your home for a long yeah. time. Yeah, I like what you said somewhere you said like it changes the tenor of the grieving mm-hmm. process to incorporate these kind of rituals and be more present with the dead. And Let's let's talk about what you're doing now. I mean, you you moved from LA to New York. You're working, you know, relentlessly. Not only you have so much fucking going on. I have no idea how you do it all, but you're you're working also with this legislation around the country. I find it fascinating that not only are things like human composting still, you know, unattainable in a lot of these jurisdictions, but like you can't even have physician-assisted deaths in the vast majority of the country. I mean, only 11 states have authorized this kind of compassionate end-of-life choice to give human beings the sovereignty over our own bodies while we are alive still. Like, we don't give a second thought to doing this for our pets. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just crazy that we don't have this agency to decide when and how we die. And I think it really further signifies this kind of disconnect of of uh, this void in our culture to really discuss these things. And it just seems like such a no brainer, but I guess talk about your work today, how people can get involved in the death positive movement. And, um, and if people live in New York, how they can support you and your, do you have a funeral home right now in New York? Well, we're thinking, we're thinking about it. I'm trying to decide my, my big East coast move, but I'm, I'm sort of trying to be on the ground here first and, and see what we need most of all. But, but the big thing that we're working on right now in New York is the legalization of human composting. Mm-hmm. And we are at the final stage. It's basically, it's passed through the legislature. It's just waiting for Governor Hochul's signature. And so if you are in New York, even if you're not in New York, send a letter to her. Send a letter that says, Hey, this should be an option. We just had the Catholic conference in New York send out a thing that says this should not be legalized. It's so disrespectful <laughs> to the human body. It's like, well, maybe we shouldn't, maybe one group shouldn't decide what's respectful for everyone. Right. You know, it's not like everyone is being sent off to the composter. <laughs> it's still, still an absolute choice what you want to do. 
So more disrespectful to pour all the ashes into a giant pit, like all the poor people in LA right, to me. Right. Maybe some of that, some of that money and advocacy could go to helping those people, Catholic church, you know, just a thought. <laughs> um, and also they, I mean, they didn't, they didn't like cremation until the 1960s either. Um, so I think we can all, you know, especially since composting is so dust to dust, you know, composting is so profoundly like, you know, the simple return to, right. you know, you would think it's the Catholic the Church would love it. It's, it's in, in the, the Bible. Bible. Compo- um, you'd think they'd love it, but, you know, really can't. fucking violent, too. Wait, Connor, I want to yeah, interrupt yeah, you really quick, because right. Connor wants to say something. Yes, Caitlin, to wrap Caitlin we up. will, once you get off the line, we will uh, remind everyone where to find all of your stuff, which is incredible, but we have time for one caller in the last uh, three minutes that we have you, Caitlin, and that caller is Connor Habib. Connor, come off mute and say hello. <laughs> Connor, you're on Connor, mute. we love you. Thank you for Oh, he can't everything. figure it out. Connor, poor dear. you got to press the mute button on the bottom of Honey, your... honey, it's the mute button. <laughs> just, just give it a little click. <laughs> the big red microphone. Right. Yes, thank you. There you are. Yay. <laughs> and Hello? when you guys were doing the... When I was doing the show with you, I was like... Well, you unmuted, but you're still not talking. Oh, no, I'm talking. Are you there? <laughs> this is so funny. <laughs> Come on. I see the Connor, we see form. you popping around. Is he trolling? No, he's No, I'm not. Uh, Maybe he just went to the to restroom. <laughs> <laughs> I brought him in at a Someone said he is talking. He's going to come on as a Someone said he is talking. I wonder if we Oh, could we not hear him? Yeah, other people said they heard him. I'm going to bring him on as a Okay, hold on. I'm going to try it. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, try again. Okay, how's that? Is that better? Yes. Mother. Yeah, I don't know. And you don't hear him either, Caitlin? Fucking hell. No. God damn it, Connor. We're so sorry. We. We're tech over here. No, we're not. We're just calling. Connor, I think, is the one that... No, everyone else can it. hear him. Oh. Everyone in the chat is just like, I heard him loud and clear. You guys oh, don't fucking up. Why not? Can they say what his question was? Did he yeah, even Connor, have a question? You, or did Connor, he type something hang? in the chat. Oh, no, oh my... F- too bad. Well, anyways. <laughs> well, Connor... That <laughs> end to the show. <laughs> well, what? I don't Good get end. it. What the fuck? Too That's bad. so weird. Okay, well... Caitlin, we know you have you have so much to do, uh, so many places to go and people <laughs> to see and dead bodies to see and care for, and uh, we appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for dosing the fuck out of us on this subject. It was an incredible show, and I just can't wait to follow your work. I encourage everyone follow, and I and I'm sorry if I mispronounced your last name earlier. Is it Dottie or Dodie? No, it's Dodie. Yeah, oh, you got it right. Okay, cool. Um, Caitlin Doty. You've been dosed into the true pronunciation <laughs> of my last name. I love it. Caitlin, Thank God. Uh, wrap it up by telling people where they can find your work and how they can support you. Yeah, Order of the Good Death is a great place to start, .com, and uh, Ask a Mortician on YouTube. And then, honestly, if you just, this makes the funeral industry crazy, but if you just Google mortician, you'll probably get me, which is the, <laughs> nice. the evil hack. Hell yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Sorry, Connor. Sorry, Connor. Connor. Next time. We love you, Connor. Next, Next time we'll time, do bro. a podcast with the three of us. And we yeah, love you too, Caitlin. I love that. Thank you both. Thanks I'll talk to you so soon. Much, Caitlin. Bye. Bye. Connor in the chat was talking about the trends in collective grieving given this horrific mass shooting at the Club Q in Colorado Springs, one of the only safe spaces for LGBTQ people in the area. Horrific uptick in violence and mass death going on in the lgbtq community and it's a good point connor i'm so sorry that we weren't able to get to that 
I think that you, me, and Caitlin should have a little follow-up combo to make up for Mike's lack of of. It's not literacy. my fault. It's not my fault. It's the calling. <laughs> it's the app. It's buggy. It's a buggy app. We love you, Connor. We love you, Caitlin. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I know it's a tough subject matter today, but I think it's a really crucial one, and hopefully, it inspired people to kind of just discuss these hard subjects. You know, because it's it's an inevitability. We're all going to have to deal with this at some point or another in our lives, and we better be prepared. We best be prepared. Love you guys. Take care.